Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. One of the popular movies in our household is Enchanted. If you haven't seen it, it's the story of a fairy tale princess who, through the treachery of her evil stepmother, is cast through a portal to a different world, which sounds like standard Disney fare. However, the strange world she finds herself in is New York City, circa 2007. And so this princess, Giselle, needs to find her way back to Prince Charming while navigating a wildly different world where people do not sing to woodland creatures and true love doesn't just happen. And the person who is guiding her along the way is an honorary divorce lawyer. To everyone she encounters, Giselle is downright weird. She doesn't know anything about how the world works, and it causes her to get into trouble and inconvenience other people. She's also innocent to the nature of New Yorkers and has to be constantly rescued. And worst of all, she sings a lot. (laughs) So Giselle is strange. She's naive. She's kind of annoying, in my opinion. But she is what I picture when I hear Jesus say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is one of the nine blessings that Jesus declares as he begins teaching his followers about the upside-down kingdom of heaven and of those who are welcome to it. Because in a world that thought the rich, the powerful, and the religious were favored by God, Jesus instead welcomed the spiritually poor, the mourning, the gentle, the people desperate to live as God desires, those who would rather show mercy than take revenge, and now also the pure in heart. These were the people who were inconvenient because they offered nothing. They lacked influence, authority, or power. They were desperate and needy. They were the outcasts, the nobodies, those who were forgotten by everyone but Jesus, that is. So why would society look down upon the pure in heart? Now, At the time, I think there were probably three main influences among the Jewish people that Jesus was speaking to. And first, you had the Pharisees, who were the religious rock stars of their time. So after the Jews had won their independence from the Seleucids around the second century BC, the new Jewish nation quickly devolved into corruption, highlighted by a carousel of assassinated leadership and high priests gaining their position through bribery. And the Pharisees were the ones who rose up at that time and called Israel back to seeking God, and specifically to follow the Torah, or the law that God gave Moses. But by Jesus' day, instead of seeking God, the Pharisees were concerned only about keeping rules. And so for them, it was all about appearance and about getting respect. And so for them... Uh, They were the smartest, the most dedicated, the most impressive, and the most demanding. Because being pure wasn't a matter of what was going on inside. It was about the outside. For them, the heart really didn't matter. And so, to be pure, you had to follow all of sorts of rules. From how to wash your hands, to which days to fast, to giving proper tithes and offerings, and the reading of scripture and bathing. And most importantly, rules for the kinds of people you are not supposed to be around. 
And this truly went to great heights. Uh, A Pharisee was considered impure or ritually unclean if they just happened to sit on the coat of a Jewish person who could not read the scriptures. So yes, even if you happen to love God, but you could not read Hebrew, and most people only spoke Aramaic or Greek, then to the Pharisee, you were not pure. Because for them, if you performed well enough, then you would be blessed. Next, I think you had the zealots. And these were the Jews who wanted to fight against the Roman occupation. And they did so through guerrilla warfare and terrorism. Purity, for the zealot, was a matter of wiping out your enemies. And those who were concerned about their hearts were worthless in the greater political struggle. So the zealot will look at someone who is trying to be pure in heart, and they would ask, don't you know what is happening to our country right now, that we are at war and we are losing to the Romans. What is most important is that we win, and if we need to get our hands dirty, so be it. Because unless we be our enemies, as long as the wrong people are in power, we will never see God. The ones who are blessed are those who will win. The last group I think, were the Hellenists. And these were the Jews who were not only mostly fine with the Romans in charge, but who also adopted their culture and their ways. And so for them, a pure heart was kind of absurd. Life was about fulfilling your desires of getting the things you want. And if you're going to find the divine, you'd find it in experiencing all the things that life has to offer, like being fabulously wealthy and eating the best foods or exploring the fullness of your sexuality. And sure, you had to take advantage of others to do so, but that is their problem and not yours. Again, for the Hellenists, it wasn't about the heart also. For them, it was about experience and moral freedom. So if being pure in heart is not found in the performance of the Pharisee, or in the political power of the zealot, or in the experience or moral freedom of the Hellenist, what is it? What does it mean? And when society saw the pure in heart as naive and inconvenient, why does Jesus call them blessed? Now, of all the blessings that Jesus pronounces at the beginning of Matthew 5, this one clearly has a specific passage from the Old Testament in mind. And it's found in Psalm 24, verses 4 through 6. However, Anytime we are given a quote within the Bible, right, we need to look at the larger context of it. Because unlike modern speakers or writers, when an ancient person, like the authors of the New Testament or even Jesus himself, made a reference, they often weren't just thinking about the words themselves, as we tend to do. Rather, they're trying to point us to an entire passage of Scripture. So, when Jesus quotes from Psalm 24, we should then take a look at the larger chunk of it. So, here is how Psalm 24 begins. Verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Now, the psalmist, in this case we're told it's David from the subtitle, is wrestling with a problem. So he's contemplating God, And he begins to wonder who could possibly be able to stand in his presence, or in Jesus' words, would see him. 
Because first, everything already belongs to God. And so there's nothing that we can offer him that doesn't truly belong to him already. And then God has created everything by himself. He is all-powerful, so we cannot coerce our way to him. And then he is also exalted and holy, meaning that he alone is truly unique and set apart and perfect in and of himself. So we can in no way complete him. Like the problem is, is that we cannot bargain our way to God. So then again, who could possibly be with him, stand in his presence or see him? And then this is the revelation in verse four. It says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, today I'm going to be using the English Standard Version because it's more literal, as in it doesn't translate some of these weird phrases, like lift up his soul, which we'll get to in a second, are going to be really important, I think. But as Jesus said, the pure in heart are the ones who will see God. So, duh, no surprise, Jesus actually knows the Bible. But what does it mean to have a pure heart? Because is Jesus thinking of the person who is ungrounded, detached from the world, or naive to the way things actually are. Now, nestled within this passage, I think Jesus is actually pointing us to the answer. And so let me read it one more time. It says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. (coughs) My suspicion is that we are not being given a list of a bunch of separate things we need to do in order to be with God. Instead, I think these last two lines are actually describing what it means to have clean hands and a pure heart. So that this is key for us to understanding why Jesus says the pure in heart are blessed. So it's important then that we figure out what is going on in this verse. And so to do it, we're just going to take it one line at a time. So first, again, in the English Standard Version, it says, does not lift up his soul to what is false. Okay, now that is a weird phrase, to lift up one's soul, so what is up with that? It sounds kind of like an offering of sorts, and in other places in the Bible, idols are called empty things, so that's where some translations come up with, it's about worshiping idols. But as you go through the rest of the Bible, and especially the Psalms, you find that this weird phrase keeps popping up over and over again. And what you find is that it's actually not about an action, it's not about something you do like sacrificing or bowing to an idol. Instead, it's talking about desire. So for example, in the book of Jeremiah, God promises that this bad king, Jehoiakim, will never return to the land, which literally says, you lift up your soul to return to. And so it's translated as, you will never come back to the land you long to return to, meaning God's telling this king that the land he's desperate to see, he's not going to see. So this weird phrase also doesn't mean just a tiny want, like I want to go have lunch and watch the baseball game after this service. It is the life-defining, so important, it's basically a need type of desire. Or to use a weird English phrase of our own, to lift up our soul is about what we set our hearts upon. In other words, the pure heart is one that is not set on what is worthless. So what does it mean then to set our heart on what is worthless or to strongly desire something that's empty and how does that keep us from seeing God? 
When our lives and hearts are ultimately being given to things that have no value, that are separate from God, they're ultimately going to keep us separate from him. Because God will not settle for second place. And so if we want to spend our lives chasing things that have no value, then he's going to give us to that chase. As God condemns Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, Israel went after what was empty and they became empty themselves. And so it's easy to see why some translations interpret this line as talking about going after false gods still. Because ultimately, whatever we set our hearts upon is what we're going to worship. And good or bad, right or wrong, that thing, that person, that idea is going to become a god to us. However, again, this isn't about action. It's not about something we do, but it's talking about the things that we long for, the things we orient our lives around, the things we want most. And I wonder if Jesus, in part, also quotes this psalm as a warning to those who would chase after other things, be that the appearance of the Pharisee or the victory of the zealot or the freedom of the Hellenist, as those things in and of themselves, are empty and are going to keep them from seeing God. Now, we'll come back to this. But for now, let's look at the the next part of what it means to have a pure heart. So, again, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, which literally, that last part comes out to as does not swear to deceit. Okay, Uh, But like the first, this one's also a bit weird, though we can kind of make sense of it in English. See, David is not talking about lying under oath. So it's similar, but it's different language, which you see all over the law. But nor is he just talking about lying. It's not the same words for that. Most likely, I think David is talking about what we are pledging our lives to, right? Kind of the other side of taking an oath. So what have we committed ourselves to? Are we building our lives on what is true, Or are we bound to the lies that give us what we have set our hearts upon? To steal the title of one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years, the person pure in heart is the one committed to live no lies. So here's where we're at with this quote from Jesus. The person who will see God is the one pure in heart, and this means that their heart is not set on what is worthless, and that they are determined to live no lies. Okay, but what's the flip side of that? Can we understand this any better? Now, strangely enough, and I say strangely enough with a twinkle in my eye, the very next psalm, Psalm 25, actually starts with the very same weird phrase, to lift up one's soul. Now, it's only within the last few hundred years that we haven't seen the book of Psalms as an intentional whole. Today, we tend to see it as a loose collection of 150 separate songs. But for most of the history of the church, the Psalms were viewed similarly to how we read the stories and parables of Jesus. Meaning, if we are stumped with what is going on in a specific story or psalm, we should look at what's going on before and after. What's also interesting is that the very end of Psalm 23 talks about a person dwelling in the house of the Lord, which seems to then set up Psalm 24 and saying, well, then who can do that? Now, my suspicion is that Psalm 25 actually further develops what it means to have a pure heart. So here's the opening two verses of Psalm 25, and pay attention for our weird phrase. Verse 1 says, To you, O Lord, 
I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. So if Psalm 24 told us what the pure heart is not, Psalm 25 starts by telling us what it positively is. That inverse to setting our hearts on what is worthless, the deepest desire of the pure heart is for God himself. And instead of pledging our lives to what is false, the pure heart puts its trust in God. That this is what it means to have a pure heart according to Jesus. Now, that doesn't sound all that radical. We've heard these words before. It doesn't shake us. And yet I think this should shake our world. Because consider what it means being pure in heart is not. Being pure in heart does not mean that you are perfect. It does not mean that you are without mistakes. It does not mean you have it all together or have it all figured out. Instead, a pure heart is one that has a sincere desire for God himself and is determined to trust him. That is the very basis for a pure heart. And for the people caught up in the appeal of religion, power, or pleasure, it makes no sense. And so they cannot see God. Now, if Psalm 25 is the song of someone who is saying, I have a pure heart, then chew on this quote from a bit later in it. This is from verses 16 through 18. He says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Is this the person or is this the prayer? that you would imagine someone pure in heart praying, someone that you would consider blessed. Because the Pharisees would hear that and say, you are a failure. The Zealots would look at it and say, you are a loser. The Hellenist, you're a fool. And yet Jesus would say, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. So I was wrestling with this passage this week. There is one story that I kept coming back to. I think it's a story of the pure-hearted person that Jesus actually has in mind. And we can find it in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. 
When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. And I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? But Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Do you catch the irony of that story? That at this dinner party hosted by a Pharisee, the only person who saw God was the high-end prostitute. Because what she wanted most was a path back to God, and she found it in Jesus. That since she had a pure heart, according to Psalm 24, she recognized God. Now, just as Psalm 24 was a warning, it also carries a promise. So as we continue on in verse 5, talking about the pure in heart, it says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And so the pure in heart, those whose desire is God and who put their trust in him, will will in turn receive blessing and righteousness from the God who saves them. There's actually this weird wordplay where they don't lift up their hearts to what's false, and so instead they lift up blessing and righteousness from God. And ultimately, again, if we're still unsure, the purity of heart is about seeking God. And not for the things he gives, but for himself, for his face. And so then what is this blessing and righteousness that they're going to take up? Well, finishing out the rest of the psalm, verse 7. It says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And so the blessing and righteousness that the pure in heart receive is the appearance of the glorious king, of God himself, coming to be with them. That in Jesus' words, they will see God. And that is the beauty of the gospel. As you look over the ancient world, all gods offer something in exchange for worship. Wealth, power, sex, fame, protections, prosperity, whatever. And yet the God of the Bible, the God whom Jesus reveals, he offers himself. And that is his greatest guarantee. And that is his truest blessing. That if you want God for himself, then he's yours. And so Jesus, the glorious king, has come. And he belongs to the pure in heart, and they belong to him. That Jesus has given himself to us to bring us to him. That he was broken for us to make us whole in him. That he has died for us so that we might live with him. Not because of our performance, not because of our success, not because of experience. Simply because we need him and we want him. So what do you truly want? 
Are you satisfied chasing the things that this world prizes? Are you content building your life upon the lies about what makes life good? Or do you recognize that deep need and want for Jesus? Do you see the immensity of the gospel and what Jesus is offering? Now, if you're anything like me, the answer isn't always clear cut. In this season of life, I think my greatest struggle has been with distraction. That too often I find myself drawn to the things that is going to help me escape or to keep my mind occupied or to follow the whispers of the world or the shouts of advertisements to help me avoid the burdens I carry. And yet, those only ever lead to greater restlessness. And perhaps you too feel the weariness and you too are tired with the shallowness of life that we're always offered. Writing this sermon has been a struggle. Or to be a little dramatic, it's been kind of an emotional bloodbath. It took me a while, though, to recognize that my difficulty wasn't in trying to write it. It was actually in wrestling with my own heart. So often, and I'm not sure what this means quite yet, God deals with my stubbornness by having me teach the things I need to hear myself that I have needed to hear that I am welcomed into his kingdom, not because I'm perfect, or not because I'm useful even, or not because I have it all together, because I don't struggle or have questions or don't find myself wandering to other things when I forget or when I forget God, but rather I'm welcomed simply because I want him and I'm desperate and I'm needy and I'm lost without him. That I cannot bargain with anything, and yet God still loves me all the same. And so to end, I want to share two things that help you and me not chase after worthless things and to live no lies. I think it was Tim Keller who described an idol as a good thing that became a God thing. So often an idol is just something good God has given us that has become separated from him. And so what actually truly makes anything empty or worthless is when it's received apart from or without God. And so to keep good things from becoming idols, we need to be thankful. Now, that sounds easy. I find it incredibly hard. And if we're honest, we Americans tend more towards entitlement than gratitude. So to combat this, we need to actively practice thanking God for the things in our lives. And if we are unable to thank him for something, it's probably a good sign that it's become a distraction or maybe worse. So for example, last Sunday, we had a worship night for our students. And the practice we started off with first was simply listing down everything we were thankful for that month. Right? Wasn't difficult. Something as easy as that. That thanking God really doesn't have to be difficult, but we do need to give it importance. Because in doing so, our enjoyment of what we have is actually realized in relationship with God. And so we lift our souls to him. That that's the key to actually enjoying the things of life. Second, we need to regularly ask ourselves, what have I been looking for? Right? Have I become distracted by other things and forgotten my deepest desire and need for God? Or have I become lost amidst the lies that tell me that God is demanding perfection, or that he's too big to find, or that he's too big to want me, or maybe too small even to help? 
or have I been seduced away to lesser things and empty pleasures apart from him? And then we need to honestly ask ourselves, is could I give up those things in order to have God himself? Because again, God is not going to settle for second place. And so if you want empty things, you can have them. But if you want God, you will find him. Before we sing our final song, we're going to give ourselves some time to seek God. And perhaps you've hesitated to talk with him because you were worried about his expectations. Maybe you've been avoiding him because you found yourself distracted by the busyness or restlessness of life. Or honestly, when you look at your heart, you're thinking, there is no way this thing's pure. But here again, Jesus' invitation, right? That the pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God, not because they're perfect or strong or well-off or have it together, but simply because they want God more than anything else. They will find him simply because they want him. So we're going to take a few minutes and just talk with him. Confess what needs to be confessed. Give thanks. Hand him your burdens. And be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to pray for us. And Jesse's going to come up and play some music as we have time to just seek God. Father, thank you that you are available to us. Thank you that you want us and you delight in coming to us and giving yourself to us. It doesn't make sense. You are so much bigger and you don't need us. And yet you love us all the same. Please help us to recognize your presence with us. Please help us to know your love and help us to heal or to hear your invitation to be with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.